0: This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Welcome to Listen In, a Bite Size Bio podcast series allowing you to access the best of Bite Size Bio webinars wherever you are. Hello. This is Karen O'Hanlon Court, and today we'll be talking about the critical analysis of research papers. Today's presenter is Johanna Alsko. Johanna received her master's and PhD degrees from the, the Department of Biosciences at Obo Academy University in Turku, Finland. During her PhD, she investigated the regulatory mechanisms of protein damaging stress pathways, focusing on post-translational modifications and transcriptional regulation. Following a short postdoc period in Turku. She continued her career as a postdoc in the University of Copenhagen in Denmark, where she studied the DNA damage repair pathway, and especially the regulation of BRCA2 and PALB2. Now she has returned to the University of Turku, where she works as a senior scientist focusing on the role of BRCA2 in prostate cancer. In addition to being passionate about different forms of scientific communication, Johanna enjoys gardening and other outdoor activities in the Finnish nature. So let's dive straight into the presentation. Over to you, Johanna.
1: Thank you, Karen. And hello, everybody. And thank you for tuning in on today's webinar. Both during my graduate and my postdoc, I was fortunate in having the opportunity to help my supervisors to review manuscripts, which is a wonderful learning experience on how to be critical but constructive when it comes to evaluating research data. <clears throat> I hope I can provide you with some practical tips for reviewing a manuscript, and also what is good to keep in mind next time you read a scientific article. So here is the outline of this webinar. First, I will discuss the aim of the manuscript reviewing process and why it is important to have a peer reviewing system. Then I will shortly go through the different steps in a reviewing process. But I will not go too deep into this topic, since it is also discussed in great detail in other webinars. I will point out some general considerations that are uh, applicable to all manuscripts, regardless of the field in question. Then we will take a look at what you might want to pay attention to when looking at the data produced to justify the scientific argument of the manuscript. I will show you some examples of data manipulation. Some image manipulation is acceptable when it helps the reader to interpret the data, whereas severe manipulation that falsifies the data is absolutely forbidden. And this is something that in many cases can be caught if the reviewing process is done properly. I will talk a little about the ethical considerations when accepting the task of peer reviewing, which also links to the topic of how important proper reviewing is to keep a high standard on published research data. So why do we need a reviewing process? Of course, it is in the best interest of science that the information that becomes publicly available is reliable, and something that fellow scientists find beneficial, to bring science forward and stimulate the discovery of new findings. Uh, So the aim of peer reviewing is to present to the public a scientifically valuable paper that adds a new meaning to a research discipline. It is also important to assure, as far as it is possible, that the published research is performed and presented correctly, and that the interpretation of the data is accurate. And to make sure that the published information is not copied, fabricated or false, but can instead genuinely contribute to scientific knowledge and be of high quality. Okay. So, next, I will shortly go through the logistics of the reviewing process. Uh, Different journals have different policies when it comes to the number of reviewers, the rounds of reviewing, and the time given for both the referees and the scientists for revising their study. In my experience, there is generally two, two to three referees and two rounds of revision. Uh, The editor makes the first decision whether or not a manuscript is sent to reviewers. The editor is actually the first referee to decide if the story is newsworthy and interesting enough to go to the expert reviewers that are specialists in the field. So how are these experts then chosen? Uh, Some journals offer the manuscript authors the possibility to suggest fitting reviewers but also to name competitors and people with conflict of interest that are less suited. Uh, The editors do not, however, have to follow these guidelines. Reviewers are usually chosen by their track record and their field of expertise, and they remain anonymous to the authors of the manuscript. Uh, The reviewer has usually 30 days to perform the peer review and to send in the comments whereafter the editor decides if the manuscript may be revised. The editor might emphasise which part of the study needs extra attention, after which the scientists have three to six months to do the revision and to answer to the comments in a point-by-point rebuttal letter. Following the rebuttal, the same reviewers consider the answers and either agree with the authors or require more revision or reject the study. Generally, the reviewing process is open so that the reviewers also see the comments and answers of the other referees. Ultimately, the final decision, whether a study is published or not, is made by the journal and the editor. Nowadays, to increase the transparency, a number of journals also publish the whole review process online. Now, let's talk about some general considerations of a manuscript that are not directly related to the quality of the data. And this is more related to the reading experience and how the story is presented. First, keep in mind what the scope of the journal is. Is this story you are reading suitable for that particular journal, or should it be published in another journal with a more applicable coverage of that particular topic uh, for a more specialized audience? Also consider the impact factor of the journal. Although every publication, regardless of the impact factor, should be of high quality, Maybe it is not appropriate to demand extensive and expensive knock-in and knock-out mouse experiments in order to tell a complete story, answering every single question in a manuscript that is aiming to publish an observation in a journal with a low impact factor. Instead, be realistic and try to suggest other, more convenient experiments to help the authors solidify their hypothesis. An important question to think about is also, what is the aim of the study and do the authors reach that aim? Furthermore, how is the story presented? Does it have a nice flow and an overall coherence? And is it delivered in a rational manner? Is the writing consistent with the presented data? And are the figures referenced accurately? An author should also be familiar with the previous literature and research leading to the study. Therefore, appropriate references should be included, and the citations in the text should be correct. then there are small details that might not seem so important, but they affect the reading experience in a negative manner if they are not uh, accurate. And as a reviewer, you do the authors a favor by pointing them out. For instance, figure outline and legend should be clear, and the materials and methods section should be complete with the material information that has been used in the experiments. Ultimately, you should ask yourself, do you understand the text and the thinking behind the study? If not, something has to be changed in the way the story is presented, because you are the expert in the field that the authors need to convince. Even if the data seems solid, the story needs to be told in a rational manner. Otherwise, people are not going to understand it. So, what about the data then? What is important to think about when looking at the presented results? After all, it's the data that is the core of a manuscript. I think first, as a reviewer, you need to have a critical but positive attitude. Most people want to publish solid data, and you are helping them to do exactly that. Generally, the data should answer the addressed scientific question, and therefore appropriate methods need to be utilized. If you're not convinced by the data and the methods used, then you can suggest additional and more informative methods or techniques that would help the authors to sell their idea so that you can agree with their conclusions. And there might also be some experiment that is missing, which would be required to add more credibility to the study. Conversely, Quantity does not always add to quality. So, sometimes removing confusing piece of data improves the overall message of the study. Uh, It is also important that the methods used are described clearly, so that the reader understands how the experiments were performed, and that they will be able to repeat the experiment if they wanted to. Uh, based on the data presented, the, the reviewer has have to, have to determine if the author's interpretation of the data is correct, and whether that is something that they can agree or disagree on. Another aspect that in, impacts on the credibility of the study is the way the authors relate their data to already published data, and whether they are able to discuss contradictory or similar data in a convincing manner. One other important aspect of correct data presentation is the inclusion of all relevant controls. And many times this aspect is neglected due to, for instance, space limitations. However, Without relevant controls, it is almost impossible for an outside reader to determine if the conclusions that are made are realistic. Pay also attention to how data in graphs are presented. It is quite easy to display that a change is bigger than what it actually is. So here you might want to check how the data is normalized. Is it full change or raw values? and how statistical significance is analyzed. I also want to point out that it is always a bit dangerous to compare two different graphs. But if you do that, pay attention to the graph scales and if they are linear or or logarithmic. Sometimes you also have to ask, does the data look too good to be true? For instance, totally clean background might be suspicious and a result of image manipulation. And I will talk more about this topic in our next segment. However, also referees are only human. So when it comes to data interpretation as a referee, it might be good to be open to alternative interpretations. And keep in mind that you yourself might be stuck in your own dogmatic view. Conversely, if the data suits your own way of thinking, or even if you have similar data yourself, still try to be critical and not give away any free passes. Nevertheless, the big question you need to keep in mind is, does the data in this study support and contribute to the scientific field? And does it bring research forward? In other words, is this data worth to be published? So uh, let's look a bit at what kind of image manipulation it might be good to be aware of if you are reviewing a study. Most journals have software and programs to check the degree of manipulation, and also professional personnel to evaluate the data. For instance, statisticians to control that the statistical data are correctly analysed. After all, the reviewer's main task is to evaluate whether the data is scientifically reliable. Nevertheless, it is good to be aware of different ways data may be presented in order to support a specific conclusion. Uh, But, of course, some manipulation is allowed to help the reader understand the results and to make the data clear. And as a reader, you should also be aware of this. So showing numerically quantified data in the form of graphs is maybe where there is most room to manipulate the way you present the data. Depending on the statistical tests, If standard deviation or standard error of the mean is used, how values are normalized and the background noise reduced, where the cutoff has been drawn or what scale is used, the results can be presented in different ways. The point is that it should always be stated how the data has been analyzed and raw data should be available upon request.
0: We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation.
1: So here I have a couple of examples on how results can be presented differently in a graph, uh, depending on what kind of scale is used. So, for instance, if the scale is too wide, like here to the right, uh, you might get the impression that the difference between the samples are not as big as in a graph with a more appropriate scale, as, as in the left uh, graph. The data also looks a bit different when, when log scale is used instead of a linear scale. And you should also recognize the difference between the data presented as actual values or as a fold change to an arbitrarily set baseline. So it is good to always pay attention to the y-axis and the legends. There is also a difference in appearance of error bars if the data is presented with standard deviation or standard error of, of mean. As you can see, the data shown with standard error of mean, error bars looks more consistent uh, than when the same data is presented with standard deviation. It is also easier to reach statistical significance using standard error of mean than standard deviation. Again, this is all perfectly fine as long as the method of analysis is clearly indicated in the text Uh, But being aware of these options in data presentation helps the referee to evaluate the conclusions made by the authors. Sometimes it is also desirable to artificially enhance the signals from microscopy images so that the result is visible on screen or in print. In this case, however, the signal manipulation has to be performed to the same extent in all images that are being compared to each other. Uh, And when showing gel images, it is often beneficial to cut away unspecific bands that might confuse the reader and remove attention from protein bands that are being studied. And with the same logic, uh, it is okay to adjust brightness and contrast in microscopy and gel images, as long as it is done linearly across the whole figure. So here is an uh, example on how western blot gels can be processed. So instead of showing an image of the whole gel with a lot of unspecific bands, uh, as shown to the left, it is more informative to show just the uh, Uh, only the protein band of interest, uh, as here to the right. Furthermore, the background noise can be reduced uh, by changing the brightness and contrast of the image. Uh, However, here the change has to be made linearly and equally throughout the image and not only for for a part of it. So these were a couple of examples of data manipulation that is acceptable and is performed to benefit the reader in making data presentation more clear. But as a referee, you can always request to see the original blot if you're not happy with the way the data is presented. And then there is data manipulation that is not acceptable. And is, uh, and is performed by, by false, falsifying experimental data that, uh, that then results in, in fraud. Maybe the most obvious cases are image duplications, where the same uh, image is used more than once, and labelled differently, giving the illusion of a separate result. To make it difficult to spot the fraud, uh, the image might be flipped vertically or horizontally, or be presented as a mirror image. And here is an example of how one and the same blot is used several times by flipping and giving the illusion that it shows the expression of different proteins in a series of samples. One way of of catching this kind of fraud is to look at specific characteristics in the lanes and background of the blot. For instance, smudges like this. So here, the the same blot has been flipped horizontally. So these are, of course, very obvious and easy to remove. So many times you might need to take a really close look if you suspect the application. But usually different blots have some individual characteristics or, or fingerprints that can be seen in in how the bands run or the background um, that cannot be edited away. It is also not allowed to cut and merge images from different gels so that it looks like they would be from the same experiment or the same gel. Uh, The same applies for removing lanes from lots by cutting and pasting. Uh, It is important to indicate that the lane has been uh, cut to avoid confusion and and promote transparency. So here is a demonstration of what I mean. So here, the middle lane is obsolete and uh, irrelevant to the presentation of the result. So instead of cutting away the lane and merging the two sides, which I have done here, and which is considered to be image manipulation, It is appropriate to clearly indicate that the image was edited like this. Another form of data manipulation is also so called P hacking, where the analysis is run and rerun until a statistical significance is uncovered. And this might even be regardless of what the research research question is. And obviously, plagiarism is absolutely not allowed. So using images or text paragraphs that are already published, be it by somebody else or from your own publication, is forbidden. However, it is okay to do a repetition of an experiment that has already been published. So as a reviewer, it is good to remember that you can always Request to see the original unedited version of the images if you suspect inappropriate manipulation of the data. If you discover that severe data manipulation has occurred, uh, then you should contact the editor and inform of your suspicion. Uh, then I wanted to mention a few ethical considerations that you might want to think about before accepting to act as a referee for a paper. As you know, some fields have very small circles, and therefore you might be too close to the authors to the point that you collaborate with them on similar projects. Then you need to be sure that you can stay neutral to the study and remain critical despite your connection. This also applies, of course, if you are reviewing a competitor's work and you have to make sure you are not being overly critical. Uh, the ethnicity, race, or gender, and also actually how famous the authors are, should not affect how you review the study. This is, uh, of, and this, of course, raises the question whether the authors of manuscripts should be anonymous when the papers are sent out for review. As it is now, uh, the reviewers know who the authors are, whereas the reviewers remain anonymous to the authors. I wanted to finish this webinar by mentioning a couple of reasons why it is important to keep high standard on the research data that is published. So sometimes you hear about these unbelievable findings that after a couple of months are retracted for containing falsified data and results that could not be reproduced. In many cases, it's almost like the topic is just very hot and uh, would revolutionize the medical industry and the medical care of patients, making it really tempting to publish the results without rigorous review. For example, there has been some studies involving human stem cells that seem too good to be true and that were indeed later retracted. This, of course, shows that people want to believe in amazing new discoveries, but it is also dangerous not to be critical when something super exciting is published. If we are not able to or don't care about catching weak or false data, it can have serious consequences. It affects the research of fellow scientists that spend time and money on trying to reproduce false data or trying to test a hypothesis that is based on false observations. If we allow publication of research that is performed in a sloppy manner or lacking controls and proper comparisons, It can result in severe implications in the public behaviour as well, as seen with the discussions on autism and vaccines. And ultimately, it may lead to diminished public's trust in, in science. So, I would say, keep an open mind, but stay critical when reviewing manuscripts. That way, the high standard of our research will bring science forward to new discoveries. Thank you for your attention.
0: Thank you, Johanna. That was a really interesting presentation. And it was a great overview, I think, for anybody who wants to, or who may be in the position where they need to review a manuscript. So that was really, really useful uh, for me also. Um, We have a few questions. Um, Before we go into the question and answer session, If anybody else has a question at this time, please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears on the right-hand side of your screen and I'll put them to Johanna. So the first question is um, actually from myself. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's about p-hacking. I hadn't heard that expression before actually. And I was wondering if you could say a little more about it, but if you could also maybe say how a reviewer can spot that.
1: Yeah, it's of course very dif- difficult for a reviewer to spot that because usually it involves a lot of data that has been analyzed and and analyzed again. So, of course, this is maybe something that uh, that is more for the specialist to, to catch. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so basically, it's that so that you you just. You, you have a set of, of data and then you, you make different sorts of statistical analysis and then you, you find a, a significance somewhere mm. and you just publish that uh, without actually linking it to any scientific question or valuable scientific question. So it, it's more this kind of... I mean, uh, of course, it's maybe not... Uh, like fraud in that sense but but i mean it, it's still not something that benefits the the scientific community to any great extent
0: i guess uh you might be tempted to say that you will almost always find significance somehow yes yeah, it, exactly you yeah you find something yeah i guess that also raises another point that um you know how much statistical knowledge should a peer reviewer actually have? Because a lot of researchers don't have in-depth knowledge yeah. about.
1: Yeah, I guess if you have done it yourself, if if you do a lot of this kind kind of uh, statistical analysis, then then you might be able to to see if something looks weird. Um, yeah. but uh, yeah, and but then it's also a question of of do we actually always need to have a statistical significance for, for our data?
0: Yeah, I, I tend to think that uh, if something is a real difference, it's very obvious without the...
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so if we, if we really aim to, to having like clear data, then, then that should be clear without a statistical significance. Yeah. But this yeah. is, of course, just uh, my thinking. Yeah, that's I mean, a good that point. Personal opinion, maybe more. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's a good point. Thanks. We also have a question from Jason. Um, is the information in the manuscript confidential?
1: Yes. So that's an important um, aspect because so if you accept uh, to be a reviewer on a manuscript, of course, you are not allowed to tell, tell about the content or the data to anybody outside your lab so like in in my case uh, my supervisors would distribute these uh, manuscripts to to people in in their labs because that's always like a good learning experience also but uh, of course it's it was very it's very important to point out that this is the information you read in these manuscripts is not to be distributed further
0: so yes.
1: that it stays in your lab yes um, so that is yeah yeah
0: and if you find anything that you're concerned about you go straight to the editor that's you don't go anywhere else yes, exactly. Yeah. okay and then we have a question from mary and it's about um if you're invited to become a rev- to be a reviewer of a paper how much experience should you have? I mean, how do you, how do you kind of figure out yourself whether you can do it or not? Because I guess I'm, I've been in this situation myself. I've been asked to review mm-hmm. some papers, and sometimes you're not, sometimes you're not really sure until you've gone through the paper in detail. Um, because does it require you to be an expert in the area? I guess that's what Mary's getting mm-hmm.
1: at. Well, yeah, I think you have to be. You have to know something about previous uh, what previous data that has has been published in the field. I would say, and you you sort of have to know what the paper is about, mm. and you 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 sort of have to get the idea of what the paper is about. Um. So, but. Um, I mean if if you know if you're within the field um, then I don't I, I think I mean you don't you you can't be an expert on everything of course no. but uh, if if you if you're within the field and you you somehow you in your previous uh, or in your career during your career you have like been involved in the topic then then I think it's okay for you to be a reviewer, yeah, um, yeah.
0: So there's really no hard and fast rule. You just have to use your own discretion.
1: Yeah, and then yeah, and then of course you can always read up on on stuff. But um, yeah, it's also just of course uh, you you sort of have to know the research field, but also like what what is doable within yeah. that field, um, yeah. so that may be good to to know.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: that's a good point.
0: Thanks. Um, mm-hmm. And then we have another question from um, Ivone, um, and this is, what should, or what do the reviewer comments tend to look like when you get back um, a review? What should you expect?
1: Yeah, so usually there is, um, uh, so people, write different style with different styles the and outlines the comments but usually uh, the reviewer has written like a short summary of the story just to show that they know what they are looking at Mm -hmm. and uh, then they just they might give like a what their general impression of the study is is it of of high quality or do they think that it's really not not worth anything to continue with um, and then usually they have like a list of uh, major specific comments so so things that they absolutely require that you do uh, experiments uh, that you perform for them to to believe in your study mm-hmm. And then they might be have like a list of minor comments then that are then like more this kind of uh, add this reference or change this uh, figure legend or, or like this minor stuff um, that they are bothered about. Um, so really sometimes people write just a couple of sentences whereas others uh, other times you might get like a three page a uh, list of things that you have to do
0: yeah thanks and it can seem worse than it is the first time you read it so you need, yeah, to, exactly. you need to yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then the next day <laughs>
1: yes. exactly yeah
0: yeah i think that's also the but, advice amanda gave earlier in the series when when she started to talk about um um the review process uh, the first thing that you mm. do when you reviews is you just you take a break and then you read it again the next day or something like that. They're usually not as bad as seen the first time.
1: But uh, basically, also like this review post process is also sort of a quality control for the study. So sure. it it's, it's there to help the the scientists to improve their their uh, work and, yeah. and make it better.
0: Yeah, and it's important to remember that also if you are the re- reviewer that that's your yeah. job, your job is not to butcher the work. It's no, and
1: it, no, exactly. Yeah. Yeah,
0: it's all about having the right attitude. So that was, that's very good. Um, I have one last question before we finish off. And it's, um, I want to know your personal opinion on something that you raised, which I think was interesting. Mm-hmm. Do you think that uh, the reviewers should know who the authors are?
1: Yeah, so this is, of course, Maybe a bit of a dangerous topic. (laughs) No, no, no. But I mean, people might have different opinions on this.
0: But yeah, just curious.
1: (laughs) Yeah, because sometimes you sort of feel like if you if you're like a big name in the field, then you it's easier to get your papers through just because you're famous. Mm -hmm. Or or then that um, (laughs) then you hear about these stories also that. If you have like all, if your the names look all female, for instance, then you get the different review. If or if they were male names, you understand what I mean? Like yeah. gender specific reviewing. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I think it would be maybe fun to test. <laughs> if it yeah. would work to have like a totally yeah. anonymous uh, reviewing process,
0: maybe already.
1: Yeah, maybe could be. Uh, so of course the editor would know who yeah. everybody is, but um, at least then I think like the reviewing uh, process would be maybe a bit more, more. Uh, I don't want to say fair, but uh, still a bit yeah more logical <laughs> in a way
0: do you think there are any benefits of knowing who the author is i'm thinking for example if you are a reviewer for, for several mm-hmm. different and you've come across a particular group before who you have actually caught doing yeah. kind of manipulation and then they suddenly submit a paper uh, to another journal and you're asked to review it should you mm-hmm. then should you then refuse to review it or should you what should you do there
1: yeah. We'd
0: be biased. And the second paper yeah. might
1: be fine. Exactly. Yeah, you would you would be pi- biased if you if you're aware of some uh, yeah, some fraud from before and then you, you get the same authors again.
0: Mm. And of course it would be, group, I mean yeah.
1: you're only human also, so it would be maybe a bit difficult to look at it with different eyes then. But Yeah. But so, I guess
0: that's maybe one benefit of knowing who the authors are because then Mm -hmm. the best to actually refuse. Yeah, yeah, that is true, yeah. But on the other hand, if you didn't know who the authors were, then you would just take it at face value, you wouldn't have to buy it. Yeah. It's an interesting topic. It could be cool to hear um, other people's opinions on this.
1: Yeah, it Um, would be nice.
0: Probably gonna be something that we discuss in the question and answer session um, at the end of the month. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't have any more questions. Uh, do you have any additional comments to add? Uh,
1: no. I, no, I don't have anything special to okay. add. <laughs>
0: well, uh, that brings us to the end of the seminar. So, Thanks again, Johanna, for a really illuminating presentation and a great discussion. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To view the full presentation of this webinar, Or to browse the listening series, please see the
1: episode description for links. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression.
0: With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab.
1: Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for mentors at your bench site in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.